and welcome to Faith Facts with Father Howard. I'm Lindsay here with Father Howard, and on today's episode, we are discussing the tabernacle. So let's get started. It's one of those things, Lindsay, that uh, oftentimes we we just take for granted is there. It's always been there and will always be there, and it's always been in the same place. But uh, when you start to look at the uh, the history of the tabernacle more, um, what it's uh, what came before it and and where it is today, and and some of the developments, it's really in some ways rather remarkable uh, how it has changed over the years. And it has, uh, it has had places of honor. It has had places of obscurity. It has had uh, no place at all for a while. Uh, but it's, uh, it's good to be able to sit down and talk to you about some of those things. And just to go over a little bit, again, one of those things that so often is just part of the background that we don't necessarily recognize that there has been some significance as to the part it has played in, in, in our liturgy and in, in our church over the centuries. So for people who may not know, what is the tabernacle? The tabernacle, uh, by the way, the Latin uh, uh, word for tabernacle and the definition, it's a Latin word, is tent. It was a tent. Um, and so it comes from, you know, the Old Testament and such where they had the Lord in a tent, or the Ark of the Covenant. It was often referred to as the tent. Uh, a tabernacle, if, uh, if you are not Catholic, sometimes even if you are, uh, the tabernacle right now today in most churches is, is kind of the gold, usually it's a gold metal cased container, box, um, appointment, depending upon what term you want to use for it, usually made out of metal, not always. Uh, some are quite simple and elaborate, but what they are is usually they're right behind the altar where the priest celebrates the Eucharist. And it is the container, the tent. It's interesting how even in looking up some of the definitions, they refer to it as a cupboard, as a <laughs> shelf, as a box. Um, I mean, they, they refer to it as a lot of different things. And it is the, the container that is often right behind the altar. And it is where the the extra reserved uh, blessed sacrament is kept. Uh, it is by rules. It's supposed to be kept locked. It is supposed to be of a durable material. But it's uh, it's it's usually if you want to be looking for it, most churches it's right in the back behind where the priest stands. However, if you are in a church that was built sometime in the late 60s or 70s, sometimes they will have a specific chapel for the tabernacle. It'll have its own chapel where you can go and pray. But that's part and parcel of some of the history. So the tabernacle is the container that is used for the reservation of the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist. Uh, it is primarily to be used for the taking viaticum or communion for the sick. It is not to be simply a storage space for extra hosts or Eucharist. It is not supposed to be, as sometimes people have irreverently referred to, as a, you know, a liturgical refrigerator. It is not supposed to be that whatsoever. It is 
to be a place where what we believe the Eucharist to be, the consecrated host, to be the body of Christ, is that it is to be a place where that host, that body of Christ, is reserved primarily for the sick. That That's what it's for. And it's only um, anything that's been consecrated. So you don't just hold, like, hosts that haven't been consecrated in there. That is right? correct. And it's only for the hosts because the wine, the blood of Christ, uh, is never to be reserved. It's just never to be reserved. And that uh, so it's only for the bread, the body of Christ, and nothing unconsecrated or whatever. Nothing is supposed to be in there that basically is has not been consecrated. So there is never a mistake. There is never somehow uh, anything that somehow you would post, pull hosts out of there that have not been consecrated, that they would never be mixed up and, you know, to be used for communion when they simply have not been consecrated. So it's, but it's usually pretty, um, pretty obvious where it is because the, next to it is also supposed to be a lamp, um, a, a vigil lamp that speaks of the presence. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, when you go into a Catholic church, it's like, you know where the, you know if the Blessed Sacrament is true, is there, if the lamp is lit. I mean, that's, that's really one of these signs. You look for that the... That or the candle has burned out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you look for the sanctuary lamp. And usually, I would say, if uh, churches and church sacristans are fastidious about one thing, it's about making sure that that sanctuary lamp is always lit. Um, except on a couple of days when the Blessed Sacrament is removed, where, but see, then it's very obvious where everything has been stripped away, doors are open, or let's say, for example, the sanctuary of a church is going to be used for something other than liturgy mm -hmm. um, because of the space or because whatever it might be, is that then the sanctuary lamp is removed because it's a sign that the Blessed Sacrament is not there. Yeah. Okay. We've done that a few times. Yeah, yeah. I, and, and you've referred to that a couple of times because of the beauty of the sacred space. Mm -hmm. And to use that space, this is why, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, this is why I don't think tabernacles should be in the main space. I really believe they ought to have their own little chapel, someplace close and connected to the, the sanctuary, um, but for private prayer and devotion and, and not in the main sanctuary of the church. Um, but that's a hot potato, and there are pros and cons on both sides. It really is a matter of preference, although the Second Vatican Council did state, you know, some things about what they thought would be appropriate. Now, when you say, oh, what, lamp, what did you say? It's called a sanctuary, sanctuary lamp. lamp. You don't mean a lamp. You mean a candle. Uh, correct. But it's called a sanctuary lamp. It's called a sanctuary lamp. It's usually a seven or eight day candle that they have. And it's usually in a container, a glass container. And if you noticed, um, you know, during the season of Lent, the container is purple. Mm. And during Easter, it might be gold or red or green. Um, there are a multitude of colors. Yeah. But it is oftentimes referred to as a lamp. And where that comes from is the oil lamps that they used to use in many churches, uh, also in the early Christ uh, centuries of Christianity, is that 
they they didn't have so much candles uh, as we do today made out of beeswax is that they had oil lamps and so it's referred to as a sanctuary lamp being that it is a perpetual light as long as the uh, the Blessed Sacrament is in the tabernacle. I just didn't want anyone going in looking for like a living room lamp, you know, next oh. to this, the tabernacle. Now, having said that, what's interesting is that uh, some churches, a lot of times driven by insurance companies, some churches do use electric uh, sanctuary lamps. And they have the flickering flame. Like the candle, like a, a like... Like a battery-operated yes. candle or something? Yeah. I could see that. No. <laughs> uh, it's. Um, I mean, it takes away a little, but, you know, I could see that. I prefer candles. Um, but, it's, but the idea being, it always brings to mind and, and reminds folks that the presence of God is there in a very significant way. And I think that's the key. Uh, it speaks of a presence and it's sometimes uh, we can we can become so familiar or so used to things that we forget that. And so I think the, the Catholics in so many ways really do a nice job with those kinds of things when it comes to rituals and it comes to those kinds of um, artifacts or appointments. We do them. We just don't know why we do them. <laughs> well, but, which is true. And, and that's why... That's why we're doing some of these, you know. (laughs) Uh, That's why we're doing some of these, um, is that it really does speak of presence. And it's a reminder. Whenever you walk into, again, a a Catholic church, one of the first things I look for is a sanctuary lamp. And and sometimes they're on an altar. Sometimes they're hanging. uh, Sometimes they're up high. Sometimes low. um, But it's a reminder that the presence of the Lord is there. And when it's not there, then I look for it saying, okay, where do they have their tabernacle? Where do they have their place of reservation that that a person can go and pray uh, privately, uh, can spend some time just quiet? Where do they have that in this sacred space? Because it's a Catholic church, you're going to have it. It's just a matter of now, maybe you need to find it. Uh, and it should always be close Shouldn't it should be someplace close to the sanctuary? Um, so tabernacles, like I said, there's there's an interesting history. As I mentioned, is that uh, the Latin word is um, tabernaculum, uh, which means tent in English. Um, as one definition, this is the Catholic Encyclopedia said, a container or cupboard in the church in which the Eucharistic bread is reserved. I mean, they pretty pretty much to the basics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think anybody would really refer to it as a container or cupboard, you know, that has ever been part of the church for very long in their their lives. We um, could start. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, it is uh, as as mentioned. It is usually secured. It is stationary. It is not something that that you would move around or, you know, kind of like where's Waldo, you know, depending upon who's there. It is something that is stationary so that people always know who walk in the church are familiar. They would always know where it is. There's, uh, you know, it it speaks about the security of it. And, And there's a reason for that. Over time in history is that as people... Uh, people became used to the fact, 
you know, as the Blessed Sacrament became more and more um, prevalent of being reserved in churches, that was not always the history, and we'll get to that a little bit, is that once it became known that the Blessed Sacrament was there, then at times early on, before tabernacles were secured, and, and they do have some heavy security mechanisms on them, some are very complex, is that it was subject to the possibility of somebody sneaking into church and taking the, the consecrated bread, the Eucharist, and using it, as they would technically say, for a profanation, profaning it. Uh, for example, uh, the term that we use oftentimes with magic, hocus pocus, that comes from the consecratory prayer, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. That's where that hocus pocus comes from. And what people would do, sometimes they would use it to either prove Jesus wasn't there or, or try to, or to use it in black magic to use it in various, uh, uh, we might term as pagan rituals. Um, and so it became more and more prevalent that the Eucharist would still be preserved, but it would be under, you know, it would be secured. Hmm. And, um, and if you ever, you know, you look at some of these tabernacles close up, I would say the vast majority are very secure. <laughs> they are you know, built into a church. They are anchored mm -hmm. to the church. It's not something that you could um, you could just kind of go in and walk away with. Um, and even where... You'd have to take down like our whole castle. It is. Uh, yes, you would. <laughs> or break out a wall. Uh, so it's, I mean, these are... Um, they take it very seriously about what this is and what it is to be used for. Uh, so it's, uh, but th again, that was not always the case, but for lots of different reasons, you know, you, you do that. If you find, for example, in some very small chapels that might be part of a retreat house or whatever, is that uh, they might be more freestanding than, uh, than built into an altar because you don't have a massive altar that's there. Mm -hmm. But then they are usually secured to a wall or they are secured to a pillar that, you know, that is not going to be easily moved. It is rare that you would have one freestanding where it could just be lifted up and moved. That might be in a very, again, a very small uh, convent or it might be in a small uh, house, of a religious order house, where it would be virtually impossible for any, quote, stranger to sneak in and, and to do anything that would profane the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, so it's, it's got, a, again, a little bit of an interesting history. The primary purpose, the primary purpose, and this is sometimes what people don't know, the primary purpose for the tabernacle is for the reserved Eucharist for viaticum, which is Holy Communion for the sick. Again, it was not for storage. It was not for extra, so we don't want to run out. And even today, uh, when they talk about, you know, how much of the, the, the bread do you consecrate, is that all of the documents will say to you, one should not consecrate more than you need, so that one 
whatever you do consecrate is tied to that mass rather than people disconnecting it. Two is that so that it's realizing that that this is a communal act, you know, in the sense of uh, that with the, the people, with the priest, you know, really that, that the power of God, that the presence of Christ in the, in the water and uh, the blood and the, the bread, the, bro- the body and blood of Christ is that, um, that this is an, is an act of the people. This is an act of the priest in persona Christi, that this is not somehow something magically that happens. And when somebody just kind of reaches in and say, let's take the storage out, is that it loses that sense of meaning. And that's why we have a sacristan, because they kind of figure out how many hosts will actually need to be consecrated for Mass so that we don't have a ton extra, right? Exactly, exactly. And there are places that go so far as they will count every person and in, you know, in order to mm-hmm. make it more and more accurate. Again, we have to also have some practicality, but it, there is... There is a seriousness about making sure that that one is consecrating what one needs and a little extra for the sick, our brothers and sisters that are not able to be there. The um, uh, secondarily, secondarily, uh, and not primarily because, in fact, many people turn these two around. Secondarily, it is for uh, a communion, let's say, outside of Mass, a communion service for some reason, um, in a way that even today, as there are sometimes fewer and fewer priests to say masses, is that what we try to do is to have enough of the Blessed Eucharist that we would be able to, let's say, have a communion service, let's say, on a Monday morning if I got sick and couldn't be here. Maybe that's 20 or uh, 30 hosts, but not 130. Sure. So, it's, But that's secondary to it. Um, and if you didn't have enough, you would simply not have it. Uh, secondly, it would be you would always have uh, one normally has a large host um, in a, a lunette. They call it a lunette. It's, it's the round uh, holder that usually goes in the middle of a monstrance, you know, for adoration, adoration for Eucharistic yeah. adoration. Is that there is usually always a large host in the lunette in your tabernacle for adoration. Even if your church doesn't necessarily do adoration? Yes. Even if they don't necessarily do it, is that because one could have it with a prayer service or whatever, and mm-hmm. and usually what you normally would do, let's say you have the, um, you know, the, the Eucharist in the lunette, is that you would have an extra, you would consecrate a large host, you would replace that one in the lunette, and then the one you would use for communion. And the reason, again, is adoration has no meaning unless it is connected to the Mass. And and the documents of the Second Council, again, is that, you know, it was one of these ideas that, you know, all of a sudden you'd pull out a monstrance and, and, and put the host in and here's Jesus almost magically, as opposed to, you know, they made it very clear that adoration has meaning because it's connected to the Eucharistic celebration, the Mass. Mm-hmm. Not because you can magically put it in a, ho- in a monstrance and, and show it to people. And, and that's sometimes what folks forget. Uh, so even when we have adoration here, is that 
that that uh, host was consecrated either that morning or it was consecrated like maybe the day before. Mm-hmm. So that it's always connected to the Mass. It's also the reason why is that if you have adoration taking place, for example, in our church here, the Holy Angels, is that because the adoration chapel is so close to the sanctuary, is that when you're having Mass, you're supposed to repose the Blessed Sacrament. Hmm. Is that... Makes sense. The it's mass, more important, right? Absolutely. The Mass always trumps adoration. Always. Always. Um, and, and many times people forget that too. Uh, and, and so it's good for them to be reminded of that, yeah. that um, we are a people who gather for Eucharist. We are not a people who simply, you know, simply sit someplace and stare at the host. It's our weekly family meal. Well, yes. You know, yes. And, you, you know, you, I want to say, you know, maybe rudely so, you know, you don't, go to a, you don't go to a home and have dinner and stare at a piece of bread. And that you say, that's my meal. You eat, you eat, you break bread, you eat, you consume. Um, that's who we are as you, and in and, and doing so, we recognize the presence of Christ in a very significant way. And, and that's why, you know, our meals at home, in many ways, are so closely tied to the meal in our churches. Um, as we continue then, um, as I mentioned, the primary, secondary, um, always connected to, to the Mass, um, the uh, as I mentioned, though the practice is not uncommon, it is not simply to store the blessed sacrament. That's not what it's for, or to store hosts. In the early church, and we're talking early centuries <laughs> of early, um, early church. yeah, early early church, as the communities were gathering in homes, when they would celebrate what we know as becoming Eucharist. And they recognized, you know, uh, the body and blood of Christ is that for their sick brothers and sisters, either after the consecratory prayers and people had received, uh, you know, in those who gathered there in that private home, is that then after they have received those would be given a part of the loaf that was broken off. It'd be given to the people who would then immediately go out to the sick. For those who couldn't be there, mm. might be sick. Maybe they were in the shepherds because they had to be in their field. But they would immediately go out and and take uh, the the sacrament to people. Again, connecting it as closely as possible to the actual celebration of Eucharist. As simple as that was you know, in the beginning. Well, it's not really any different than, you know, before coronavirus when people would go go to Mass on Sunday and then take communion to a correct. nursing home or something like that. That is correct. And it's most appropriate, you know, when we take communion to people, it is most appropriate to do so at Sunday. To, to literally take it, you know, to go and to take that sacrament that's connected to the Mass. Not to have it sitting in a purse or in your pocket for several days, but to immediately go and sing, and then to pray with our brothers and sisters, uh, to pray for them within the context of Mass, but then to go out and to take the Eucharist uh, to the um, uh, to the people that aren't able to be there. Now, it's interesting is that uh, a, a pix, 
We call it a PIX, P-Y-X. The Latin definition of that is wood box. <laughs> um, is that we often have them made of metal, and they can be made of other uh, sometimes precious metals. Um, sturdy, uh, something that, that is not easily broken, destroyed, whatever. Should be something that speaks of dignity. Um, and so the early in the early church, they would have these little wooden boxes and they would hang them from the ceiling uh, for the reservation of Eucharist above the dinner table. Huh. This is how the, this was kind of your early tabernacle. Uh, these were uh, little little things, little boxes, little containers. Um, you know, again, you're talking about simple people. These were not, you know, necessarily like wealthy. poor people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, they didn't have things that were going to be made out of gold or ivory or silver or anything like that. Is that, um, but they were suspended over the dinner table, which was the makeshift altar, which is what they would use. Or if the home, let's say it was the designated place where, uh, you would have where, where people would gather for Eucharist, it would be hung above that designated altar in a particular person's home. Um, it might also be placed in a small cupboard next to that altar. Again, a place where things would be reserved. Then people in the neighborhood, hence the cupboard, hence the cupboard, people in the neighborhood would then they would go to that person's home and saying, I need to take the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, to my neighbor Bob, you know, who, um, who is dying and he wishes to receive. And then the leader or whomever would take it then would necessarily take it. At the time, priesthood didn't exist as, as it does today. So there were either your neighbor or designated people that might go and do that. Uh, but they were in little cupboards. Um, or they would have what they called uh, little sacrament houses. And sometimes these were little freestanding places next to a person's home. Um, sometimes it would be like a little place, again, a little cupboard type of thing in a home. Sometimes it might be uh, near a place where the community normally gathered. What it was is that it it provided access to the community of being able to take the Blessed Sacrament uh, to people who were sick. Um, because they wouldn't, they wouldn't use it. They wouldn't have had communion services. That, that just wasn't part of the mm -hmm. culture or liturgical life at that point in time. It's not until, what's interesting, it's not until the 1500s that a practice was used to have the reservation built into an altar or to have it on an altar uh, in your church. That was not until the 1500s. So wow. you're dealing so with... So recently. Yes. It's not until... But it wasn't legislated. I mean, it wasn't a rule that you had to have it. slowly started Exactly. Happening. It wasn't until the 1800s that the practice then was to build tabernacles in what were called the high altars, similar to holy angels. Mm -hmm. That altar back there was considered the high altar. You had small altars on the sides, mm -hmm. if you remember the pictures and yep. such, but the high altar, the main altar. I like is, to call it the castle. The, the castle. That's where you would have your, uh, your tabernacle built into that. 
Okay. Okay. And if before they would have had the altar in the middle where it is now, you know, where we preside, is that that altar, that ledge, right in front of the, that's where the that's the altar. The old altar, yeah. That would have been the old altar, and that's where uh, the priests would have celebrated, and it would have been right in front mm. of the tabernacle. Where the Last Supper mm-hmm. picture is. Yes. If you know holy angels. Yes. Yes. Uh, the Last Supper is, is toward the bottom there, mm-hmm. and that edge up on, ledge up on top <clears throat> would have been the main altar. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't until the 1800s. So wow. talk about really, really recent. recent. Yeah. Um, that, that it was, uh, that, and all other places for tabernacles were forbidden. Sometimes they had small ones in the side altars. Sometimes they might have had a little niche in the wall. Um, these, it was legislated at that time that it was to be built into the main altar. Hmm. Uh, and that, again, that talk, again, recent. Yeah. 1800s, 1800s. Only, at, well, depending on when in the 1800s. I mean, Holy Angels was 19, the building 1915. So that's really not mm-hmm. that far from when that was legislated. Exactly, exactly. And when they built that altar, that would have been the law. You had to have the tabernacle there. Mm-hmm. That, okay. Fast forward a bit. And it really, you know, it, it really hadn't changed at all until the Second Council, Vatican Council. When, with the liturgical reforms... And it wasn't until then, after 1965, that the practice began to change. Um, Each church was to have a tabernacle, of course. That was legislated. But where that tabernacle was located, after the changes in the council, the council made it clear that it was preferable to have a, a a separate small chapel for the tabernacle. So, for example, again, if you know St. Holy Angels, not St. but Holy (laughs) Angels, where they have normally would have adoration, that would have been, or on the other side, that would have been the niche, the little cove where the tabernacle would have been. It would not have been been in the sacristy, right? No, not in the sacristy. So that, the adoration chapel used to be the sacristy of the church. Okay. It would have been but a so side chapel like side, that, yeah. yeah, or the other side, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because, it, remember, the tabernacle is only for res- reservation of the Blessed Sacrament. Right. It is. It has no use within the Mass whatsoever. And so, with the liturgical uh, reforms, it was recognized that let's put it in a sacred space, allow people to be able to gather there and to pray, private devotion, whatever it might be. But let's make sure that when we celebrate Eucharist, our focus is where it needs to be. Mm. And that is the table of the Blessed Sacrament, table of the Eucharist, and the table of the Word. There, were th- there was an emphasis after the Second Council that the presence of Christ was present in the Eucharist in three specific and significant ways. In the word of God proclaimed and heard by people of faith, one way. In the congregation celebrated, or I should say gathered. Mm -hmm. That was the second way. And the primary way was in the, the bread and the wine. Still had primacy 
you know, of, of the presence. But it also said there is significant presence in the word proclaimed and in the community gathered. Nothing is said about tabernacles. <laughs> and and I, and I think sometimes, you know, there was a, to me, there was a real wisdom to that. Uh, it's not that we threw them out or, or we didn't give the significance. Uh, when you look at some of these churches, the, the space that, that, that was created um, in some of these older churches, absolutely stunning and gorgeous. You know, talk about a place of reverence, of holiness. And, and it also keeps the fact that, you know, the tabernacle is not to be a center of attention. Mm-hmm. It's a storage container to be used as a way for people to pray privately, not as a main attraction. So when you come into a church and people mm-hmm. genuflect, are you genuflecting for the altar? Or are you genuflecting for Jesus in the tabernacle? Yes and yes. I mean, if the tabernacle were not there, you would still, because the the table of word and table of sacrament are still, still, there. still there and are consecrated elements. These True. these are not seen as somehow just, you know, until we find something better. But these are to be the mainstay, you might say, of when we gather to celebrate. We gather around the word and we gather around the table. Um, so the altar is blessed, consecrated, right? But the ambo is too? Well, I didn't know that. They're both consecrated. Okay. And, and see, again, we forget that. And it's realizing that um, tabernacles are blessed, they're not consecrated. Hmm. Our theology, What's the difference? Well, when you consecrate something, usually you use the oils. You will bless it with oil. There are special prayers. Um, for a tabernacle, I mean, there's a, there's a specific blessing that you use, sure. but you can find that in, in, in pretty much any book of blessing that you, that you have for the Roman church, for the Catholic church. The consecration of altars and, and these kinds of things, um, these are found in the, in the bishop's book because that's basically who's going to do that, is that you bring a bishop in to, to, you know, for your altar, for your ambo, because these are primary places, ways of how people experience the presence of God. Um, hmm. You don't do that for tabernacles. Again, we, we teach... In ways by sometimes by not saying a word, but by the rituals that we have. Again, some people might say I'm trying to trash tabernacles. I am not. I am trying to put it within a proper context that oftentimes it loses because we as people, and I would dare say sometimes as clergy, we don't have a proper understanding or or we have allowed it to be skewed. Mm-hmm. Maybe because of our own pieties. Whatever it might be, but the church is very clear about what what you know, about what we do and why we do these things. And like anyone else, whether clergy, bishops, whoever, sometimes we can just tend to ignore that because it doesn't necessarily meet with our own personal piety. But you read the documents, and the documents are very clear. Um, even the recently published ones, the documents are very clear. After the reforms, as I mentioned, is that. Uh, there was oftentimes the uh, the places where people went 
and um, not places where people, I should say, the places where the tabernacles went and, and, and how they were decorated, how they were really, the vast majority that I've ever seen were beautiful, beautiful spaces. Now, you can go from the sublime to the ridiculous. You know, you'll have the, the, the very simple box and, and sometimes beautifully carved uh, places out of wood and different uh, mm-hmm. materials. And you can, you, you can spend a few hundred dollars or you can spend thousands of dollars on these. And, and you go into some cathedrals, and I can't remember which cathedral. It was one down the West Coast. But there was this massive, massive, uh, basically, uh, ball. It had, you know, kind of like a sun and everything. Just massive. And, and during Mass, it would be lowered down. And then it would be opened up. It was the, that was the tabernacle. Oh my gosh. But it had this this massive place, you know, of of, um, of of the tabernacle again, from the sublime to the ridiculous, you know, that you can have. So really, what limited it was was really one's own creativity. Um, well then, the um, so the location. What's interesting, like anything else, the locations of these things change. Um, when, when you think about because of where should it be located, council made it clear it was to be in a separate space, okay? But over a few decades and, and theologies and depending upon who is pope and who is bishop and politics and all sorts of sure, things, sure. Um, in the last decades or so that the trend has been to having them move back to the main altars. I personally think that's a mistake. I personally think that that is, um, that is not an appropriate theology. Again, it's making a tabernacle a religious storage container. It's making it the center of attention. Like main altars, like our altar is currently in the middle of the sanctuary, like putting a tabernacle there? No, I mean, where it is. Or you just mean, I mean where it currently where, where, is in the sanctuary? Is curr- yes. Okay. Where I, I really feel, I believe... That it should be like in the side and have it, you you gotcha. create a prayer space or someplace in the church, someplace close, um, <clears throat> that it is accessible, but it does not become focus. And and why do I say that? Because you will see this happen time and time again, Lindsay. A person will walk up, let's say they're you know, uh, and the the minister of the Eucharist of the body of Christ is is so you have to turn a bit. So you are um, not, you know, facing the main altar. You're actually facing the side of the church. They will receive the body of Christ. And rather than saying amen and receiving it, they turn to the tabernacle and bow. (laughs) What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? They have the body of Christ in their hand. Mm -hmm. And they're turning and they're bowing, oftentimes genuflecting. To a tabernacle, which is... Which is empty at that point. Basically, it, it, it normally is. It yeah. would be empty. And yet, we are so geared toward... We, at times, I don't think we even know what we do. Well, right, we just do it. Like I said, we do not We do it. We don't know why we do it. Or, it's like a person walking into a Lutheran church and genuflecting. <laughs> why would you do that? True. Why would you do that? Um, the... Uh, and so what happens is, you're right, we do things, and what we do, though, 
doesn't match the theology we say we have. Mm-hmm. I have the body of Christ in my hand. Why would I bow to an empty box, no matter how pretty it is? But anyway, so like I said, theologies change, and I suspect it'll all change, and, and at some point, depending upon the circumstances, we'll all take our tabernacles and, and we'll put them someplace in the side because somebody decided that we should be what we should do again, and we will have forgotten <coughs> that in the mid-1960s, that's what we were doing in the first place. <laughs> Trends. Yeah. Trends. All depends on who's in charge. At least they have one. Yes. <laughs> Who the Pope is, who the Bishop is, who the pastor who the, is. Yeah, who the priest. It all, you know, and sometimes we tend to forget that there was a Vatican Council that spoke to that. But neither here nor there. It's a different conversation. Yes. So there are lots of pros and cons um, when it comes to the placement of tabernacles. Um, now, if you built a church, it would have to be in the center. Hmm. Um, the Although... Uh, there were those who were encouraged to put them in the center if they weren't already. Uh, but there were those churches saying, oh, we're not going to take it out of, you know, this beautiful chapel here because it's your opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, one, it would destroy the integrity of the church. Now, what's interesting when you talk about placement of those, where I used to be at St. Mary's in, um, in Waukesha, is that they built a brand new church in 1963, brand new church. So right after the council, uh, or really right as the council was finishing up and, and saying, my gosh, what do we do? Well, they took, they took this, um, the, the aspect of the um, tabernacle being placed in a place of prominence in a whole different way. And they literally put it in the front on top of the altar. And there's a choice. Yes. And so but at so initially and I and I'm aware of that because uh, the the son of the person who built the church an architect of it is that uh, a good friend of mine is that he was telling me about what they did initially. And yeah, they had it right, right in the middle of like, well, not in the middle, but in the front of the altar. Mm-hmm. And so that was very short lived. And you can imagine why, um, you know, and then they they placed it, you know, on a pedestal behind eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's, you know, these things change constantly. And again, it's just a matter sure. of time, you know, and there are pros and cons. I'm sure there are people who would disagree with me on some of these points, uh, but it would certainly be for lively discussion. But it's, it's like I said, it's one of those things that can and, and, and ought to be used um, for private prayer. I don't necessarily think we need to have the Blessed Sacrament exposed. That is certainly one way to pray. But there's also a lot of people who come to church and they just need to know that God is present. They just need to know that. And it is incredibly comforting for people to be able to even I found you know during the pandemic and such is that I kept the doors of the church open as we had talked about as a staff saying it's important that we don't lock our buildings up people sometimes need to go someplace where they are reminded that God is still very much present when we live in a world where sometimes we're just not sure anymore 
And when one can go into a Catholic church, what's interesting is that I know a number of my, uh, friends that I have that are not of the Catholic tradition. <laughs> they would come into our church also because, one, it was one of the only things open. But again, even for them, it was a reminder and it brought comfort. God was still present even in the midst of so much darkness in their life at that point in time. Tabernacles have a use, you know, not just, you know, the practical storage use. Um, they have a use of, of reminding people of, of time and space, something that is real, that is tangible, that in ways that we can say, he's there. Yeah, I know he's all over. We get that. <laughs> but to be able to say and be reminded with that sanctuary lamp, whatever form it takes, is to know that he's there. And, and that is incredibly comforting to people. And, I, and, and folks have told me, um, you know, one of the things they loved the most was the fact they knew that they could come into Holy Angels Church and simply pray. Simply to pray. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there is tremendous value. Even though it may be expressed in different ways, there's, there's tremendous, tremendous value. Um, as I said, uh, you know, it's lots of pros and cons, you know, when it comes to those. But when it comes to tabernacles, it's just important for us sometimes to remind each other what it's for and the whys. What it's for and the whys. Uh, when we start asking some of those questions, one, uh, I think we start making wise decisions. But I also think that um, we, we recognize the difference that it can make. Probably more than you wanted to know about tabernacles, but nonetheless. Maybe, but I actually have a question. Sure. And maybe this didn't come up in your research, but does the history of the tabernacle have anything to do with the Ark of the Covenant? And then in the Jewish tradition, they have a ark where they put the Torah scrolls. In many ways, it's 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 very similar. Yes, and and I would probably say that it is. Um, and I would really pretty much say with certainty it is based on that because even in the temple, you had the holy of holies, mm -hmm. and in that holy of holies you had the ark, and only the high priest could go in that holy sacred space. And that was one time a year, and so that. That whole idea of, of the tent, that whole idea, you know, when they talk about in the scriptures, that the Lord pitched his tent among us. The Ark of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. um, the tabernacle, you know. Holds things that are important. Yes, very much so. So you would have had, you know, for the, uh, for the Jewish people, certainly would have been the Torah, would have been, you know, that the holy. I mean, they talk about holy, holy things is that then for us, certainly, um, the, the body of Christ, you know, in, in the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there is, there is a, a correlation there. And as you see, even at times, the decoration around tabernacles or on the doors of tabernacles, you will see at times the Alpha and the Omega on the inner doors. Yep. You will see images of angels, cherubim, seraphim. Um, you will see images... Of, of those, you know, uh, uh, heavenly creatures, you might <laughs> say. And then, as we have it at, at Holy Angels here, you, you see, you will always see angels around it. Somehow yeah. there will be angels there. 
mean, that's easy for us. Yes. For holy angels, for goodness but even sakes. But <laughs> in other churches, you'll have images of, of heavenly beings, you know. Hmm. Um, and and that, again, that's largely due to the uh, to what they, you know, the, the Old Testament describes mm-hmm. when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Well, there you have it. A lot of information you didn't need you didn't know you needed to know about the tabernacle. We hope you enjoyed that. We will leave it there for this time. If you want to reach out to us, it's holyangelswb at gmail.com. Send us a note. We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, we will see you next time.